Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans. We spent a few weeks for Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday outside uh, this epistle, but we'll be looking at Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 16 today. If you didn't bring a Bible and you'd like to follow along, uh, there are pew Bibles provided for you, and you'll find our passage on page 940, and it's also printed on pages 8 and 9 in your order of worship. And so we'll be looking at that text in just a moment. As we come to the book of Romans, we may have many ideas about what this book is. Um, I think for many of us, it's an amazing theological book. It's almost this systematic theology, a nice short systematic theology for us. And while it's true that Romans unpacks the gospel in a way that is so thorough, um, probably the most thorough explanation of the gospel in the New Testament, it's important to remember that as we come to it, that it was a letter that was intended to help the church at Rome. It wasn't just given to us um, to study and debate about theological things, um, even though we may do that with it sometimes. And there was a problem going on at the church at Rome. And so when we think, when you hear church at Rome, I don't know if you think of like a mega church there in Italy or something, um, packing out the Colosseum, probably not. Instead, uh, about five probably house churches for the size, probably five different house churches meeting together, all referred to as the church at Rome. And there was a problem with how those believers were treating one another. We might lose sight of that because we don't really find out about it until we come into chapters 12 through 16. And by then, (laughs) uh, we're pretty far in the book, right? Um, And it seems like some of the difficulties was over how their different convictions about what the Christian life should look like, how those things were working or not working together. And at the center of these issues that, again, we will get to in many weeks, but we have to keep in mind at this beginning stage, at the center of these issues was the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. All throughout the book, as we're going to be unpacking Paul's argument, it's essential to keep um, this distinction and this understanding in mind. And so I thought it'd be a good time just to review what we mean with those terms. Kids, when I say Jews and Gentiles, when we find that in our Bibles, do you know what that's referring to? And I'll let you in on it, and as I do, it can refresh all of the adults' minds in the rooms as well, right? But when we come across Paul's argument about Jews or Jewish people, what he's referring to are the Israelites, descendants of Abraham. They could trace their lineage back to one of the 12 tribes, And they practiced many of the rules and the customs that we read about in the Old Testament. And if you think of the Jewish Christians there in the church at Rome, many of them had grown up hearing God's word, having the Old Testament read every Sabbath. So that's what comes to mind, this this rich Old Testament history of the Jewish people who have now come to believe in Jesus as Messiah. Then on the other side, Gentile was a term for anyone who was not Jewish. It was a term for anyone who was not part of the Jewish people who couldn't trace their lineage back to Abraham. And there were people who were Gentiles from all over the rest of the world, right? As as Paul's writing, he's speaking of people from Europe and from Africa and from Asia. And Gentiles didn't grow up keeping the Jewish customs. 
You know, before they became Christians, they probably worshipped other gods and did other religious things. And so you can see the potential for problems when these two groups become Christians in the same church, right? Jewish Christians already had a long history of following the God of the Bible. They'd grown up around all kinds of rules and practices that made them different and distinct from the Gentiles, from everyone else around them. And there were all kinds of things that they just implicitly thought and believed that godly people just don't do. You just don't eat those things. You just don't do those things on Saturday. And the things that Gentile Christians seem to be okay with many of the Jewish Christians thought weren't allowable as believers. They tended to look down on Gentile Christians in the church. They looked down on their looseness and thought that the Gentile Christians needed to do things their way. But it wasn't just the Jewish Christians who struggled. The Gentile Christians also saw things differently. They saw that many of the Jewish customs had been fulfilled and were changing with the coming of Jesus. And they loved their bacon cheeseburgers. And Saturdays were a great day to mow the lawn. And now in Christ, we didn't have to give up those things. And so they looked upon the Jewish Christians as being too strict in not understanding the times of the New Testament and what Jesus had done. And so as we go throughout this book, we have to keep this situation in mind, and we're going to see how these tensions were affecting their relationships as a church. And not only was it affecting their relationships as a church, but that in turn was affecting their overall witness in Rome as they were relating to one another and relating to society. Well, we face similar challenges, don't we? As I describe those things, it's so easy in my mind to just picture different groups of us, right? Different tendencies and proclivities that we have. And if the last two election cycles and weathering a pandemic together have taught us anything, I think one of the things it's shown us is that Christians with differing convictions often have a hard time relating to each other. We can be pretty thin on the unity that we're supposed to have when we see things very differently. And the the other similarity is we find ourselves, like the church in Rome, asking the question, how do we maintain a faithful gospel witness in a society that believes very different things than we do and has very different practices than we may think godly people do or don't do? And so we face similar situation in many ways, and we'll be unpacking that in the weeks to come. But it begs the question, what is the solution to this? How can this work out? And Paul answers that in the book of Romans, and he does so by taking them back to the gospel. He takes them back to the good news of God's grace. And today, what we'll see is part of what we need to understand to be able to handle the complexities of the world in which we live is we need to understand the good news of God's impartial grace. God's impartial grace. And so that's what we'll be looking at this morning. So with that in mind, here um, our passage this morning, Romans 2, verses 1 to 16 I will read it, and then um, we'll unpack it together and see what it has to say for us as we seek to grow 
in our understanding of the gospel. This is God's word. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, to the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask that he'll help us by his spirit as we turn to it this morning. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us We know that you have sent your spirit so that he could illumine our hearts to better understand your word. And so this morning, we fearfully and reverently ask that you would convict us, that you would humble us, and that you would delight us afresh in your love and in your grace. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we consider this uh, text this morning... Uh, We're going to do so in three points. The first is your distorted judgment. The second is God's impartial judgment. And then third, we'll look at Jesus' perfect judgment. So your distorted judgment, God's impartial judgment, and Jesus' perfect judgment. So the first thing that Paul wants us to understand is the twisted nature of our own perception of ourselves. And we see that in our first point which is entitled, Your Distorted Judgment. Paul is doing something masterful here as he begins this letter. And um, part of me wishes we would have even read all of chapter one as, as we moved into this. But, but Paul has said up front that he is all about the gospel. In it, good news of God's salvation is being revealed. But part of understanding the wonder of the gospel is knowing the bad news. 
And the bad news that he unpacks is the true human condition. He says back in chapter 1 that God has revealed things about himself to us. We innately know about him just by the fact that we've been created in his image. And then there are also things that he has revealed about himself in creation. But humanity's response to this revelation of God and his character and what our response to him is supposed to be, humanity's response is to take that truth that's revealed and to exchange it for a lie. And this leads to a distortion to a rejection of the truth about who God is and about what we owe him as his creatures. And what that does then is that distortion and suppression of the truth has results in us. It results in distorted uses of our bodies and our minds, which result in every kind of sin. And what Paul says in chapter 1 is that God's wrath, God's righteous punishment, is seen even now. And it's seen now in his handing of humanity over to this idolatry that we have pursued. God, in a sense, says this, you won't honor me with your body, then you will be handed over to doing dishonorable things with your bodies. You don't approve of me with your knowledge, then you'll be handed over to unapproved minds. And Paul unpacks in chapter 1 how this manifests itself in all types of sins. And for a Jewish Christian who's sitting there listening, Paul was mostly describing what's going on out there. These are things in their mind that godly people just don't do especially when Paul speaks of sexual immorality and same-sex sexual immorality. These were just things that Jewish Christians thought they would never do. And so they find themselves caught up saying, Amen! (laughs) Preach it, Paul! That sure is going on in Rome. But then (laughs) Paul gives a list of 21 sins in verses 29 to 31, and I think the listeners like ourselves, find themselves saying, whoa, wait a minute, those are starting to hit a little bit closer to home, aren't they? Deceit, gossip, slander, disobedient to parents, ruthless, faithless, heartless. Wait a minute, Paul, are, are you starting to, that's getting a little bit close. And then when we come to chapter two, verse one, there's a major change. You see, Paul's been describing this human condition that's going on, and then he shifts to this type of writing that's called a diatribe. It's like he's talking to someone now. And you'll notice he switches to you singular there. And that's going to happen throughout chapter 2 and chapter 3. And he's raising and answering questions, but you can't hear the person that he's talking to. It's like when we watch a show or a movie and someone's on the phone. And it's a way of advancing dialogue that keeps us riveted, doesn't it? Part of the reason it keeps you riveted is because your brain is working overtime to try and fill in the other part of the conversation as you're listening to just one side of it. And it makes you lean in and listen, and it, it captures your attention. And so listen to what happens as he shifts there in chapter 2, verse 1. Paul then points his finger and says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man or O person. We find ourselves saying, (laughs) wait a minute, who's this O man that he's talking to? 
I guess I have to keep listening to find out, right? And Paul says that there's this major problem in verse 1. You have no excuse, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. (laughs) Now, wait a minute, Paul. Practice the very same things. I'm not involved in those sexual sins that you just mentioned above. And Paul says, well, maybe not those. But what about that list in 28 to 31? Because what I've been arguing is they all come from the same root of suppressing the truth about God and rebelling against his ways. And so Paul in verse 2, he says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things, right? I mean, you were just amening this a minute ago, weren't you? Well, well, yes, yes, of course, we know that God judges those things and God judges people who do those sins. Notice what Paul says in verse 3, but if you judge those who practice such things and you do some of those same things yourself, What does that mean for you? Do you think that you will escape the judgment of God? Well, I mean, no, but but what about God's mercy? I mean, God's kind, and he's kind especially to his people, isn't he? And what we find here going on, is that one of the beliefs that was very common in Jewish thinking, and it seems that Paul's now, and it's going to become explicit later, but he's interacting with this Jewish Christian mindset or someone coming from a Jewish background. One of the beliefs that was very common in their thinking was that since they were God's chosen people in the Old Testament, that he was more lenient with them. And they took passages about how God would judge the other nations and how he would save them, And some came to think that it meant that he would just let his people slide. God is kind and forbearing and patient with us. And the bottom line of it is this. Surely I'm not in the same position as those Gentiles. I mean, right? And Paul says, wrong. You're presuming upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. He says, don't you understand? God's kindness is not because he's lenient about some standard. It's his kindness is there to lead you to repentance. But when you are sitting there pointing your fingers at others and don't realize that you are doing the very same things, instead of storing up treasure and blessing, you're storing up wrath for the day of judgment. See, Paul's saying, your judgment is distorted. And Paul's going to have to blow away those distortions bit by bit throughout the next few chapters. And we're going to see that as we go. But this is really the crux of of what we're looking at today and so much is diagnosing this distorted judgment problem that Paul picks apart. And I think before we go on to our next point, we should consider what this means for us. You see, Paul warns us about a major danger in the fallen human heart. It's the danger of comforting ourselves with other people's sins. 
It's the danger that happens when what's at the forefront of our minds is what others are doing, those bad things other people are doing. And we're oblivious to the fact that we are doing things that come from the very same idolatrous root as well. You know, a lot of times as Christians, we know that we're all sinners, right? So we'll say things like, well, I'm, I'm not perfect either. Like, sure, I'm not perfect. I, I know I sin and need God's grace. But an indication of this distorted perception could be if we're rarely confessing our own real sins, both to God and to other people. How often is that happening in our own lives is a good indicator of how well we understand God's judgment. And as I've been thinking about this and just undone by the thought of this personally and how much it's a part of my own heart, I've realized that this danger can become more and more dangerous the longer you're in the church. (laughs) The more you sit here, the more you read this, And some of the reason for that is because you can come to know more and more about sin. And then you come to know more and more that it's not just these outward things that we do, but it comes from the heart. I mean, I'm trained in what's called biblical counseling, which is helping people get to the heart of what's going wrong in our lives, right? And so you know what's so dangerous about that? I can look around all day and be like, I see that, I see that, I see that. That's probably coming from that. I bet if we unpack that, it would be that, right? And I could miss this, the messed up nature of what's going on in there. The longer we're a Christian, the more ammo it gives us to see and judge the wrong that's going on all around us, doesn't it? And so... Knowing what is wrong and what is sinful is very important. It is part of conversion. It's part of coming to Christ, is seeing what's wrong and turning to him. It's part of Christian growth. But the danger that Paul wants us to see is when we see sin out there and fail to see that we practice the very same things, then we've gone tragically wrong. And can I be even more candid with you? (laughs) I feel like I'm starting off kind of candid, I guess. <laughs> In a church like ours, can we just be honest about who we are as a church? We take doctrine and the Bible very seriously, don't we? We tend to mostly have people who are not looking for a license to live however they want. We tend to want to know what is right and wrong and to stand on that truth regardless of the cost. And this is all good, and it's all right, and I am thankful for it, and I am committed to always upholding the truth of what the scriptures say about doctrine and life. That is what we do. But we also have to understand that the flip side of that is that one of our biggest temptations is going to be thinking that pointing out what is wrong is the same thing as doing what is right. And it's not. Paul blows that to pieces. And when we're more characterized by calling out sin than we are by then by living and loving like Jesus loves, then it shows we have a distorted view of God's judgment 
And what Paul is arguing here is it says we have a distorted view of the gospel. And so that's what he seeks to address. Our distorted judgment reveals a gospel problem. And so that takes us really to our second point. We need to clearly see, secondly, God's impartial judgment. Paul wants us to see clearly how impartial God is as a judge, as something that will help us remedy this tendency that we have to judge others wrongly. In order to really understand the wonder of God's grace, we have to understand how it is that he judges. And there's, there's two points that Paul makes here, two subpoints. God judges you by what you do, not by being Jewish and not by having the law. And so we'll just look at those in turn. First, God judges by what you do, not by being Jewish. And this is in verses 6 to 11. Verses 6 to 11 form a stunning judgment sandwich. If you're ever hungry for a judgment sandwich, come to Romans 2, verses 6 through 11. Because you can see it there. You see the outsides of what it says in verse 6 and what it says there in verse 11. Verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. Verse 11, God shows no partiality. And then in verses 7 through 10, in between, he shows that there are two ways to live and he sets them up just beautifully. But just to summarize, he says, one, of, one way to live is motivated by glory and honor and immortality. Now those words might sound strange to us, but John Stott captures it so well when he says that this is profoundly God-oriented language. One way to live is motivated by God's glory, God's honor and approval, and immortality of life in God's presence. And a life motivated that way results in doing good. And Paul says it leads to the gift of eternal life and glory and honor and peace. It's amazing. But there's another way to live. And that way is self-seeking, Paul says. And it doesn't obey the truth, but instead it obeys unrighteousness and it does evil. And for that, Paul says, the result is wrath and fury, tribulation and distress. There are two ways to live. And this is how it works for everyone. Did you notice in verse 6, he makes it clear. He says, we will render to each one. And then he repeats in that section the phrase to the Jew first and also the Greek or also the Gentile, as we were talking about before. He repeats it twice for each way of living. He wants to make it abundantly clear that yes, there are advantages to being a Jewish person. We'll talk more about this later as we come to chapter 3 and to chapter 9, but you have a history of interacting with God and you have his word that's been given to you. But Paul wants to make it clear, your status as a Jewish person doesn't in any way get you a more lenient standard. God impartially judges each person according to what they have done, and he shows no partiality. Instead, it's actually increased accountability because you knew even more of what God expected you to do, is what Paul says here. Now, before we get too lost in the argumentation, we could just zoom out for just a second. We may not be sitting here today, many of us thinking that our ethnicity in some way gets us a different standard when it comes to the Bible. Maybe we are, maybe we aren't. But one of the things we can be tempted to think is that maybe being a Christian for a long time, 
growing up in a Christian home or being just a good church person, doesn't that make God more lenient with us than he is with others? It's something that can creep into our thinking. And so what Paul wants us to see is that your, your social group, your ethnicity, being a Jewish person, it doesn't get you a different standard. But then here's where kind of an objection comes in as he's interacting. Well, but there's a major difference, Paul. Jews have the scriptures and Gentiles by nature didn't have the scriptures and didn't have the law. So how does this work out in God's fairness scheme, right? And so Paul addresses that in verses 12 to 16. And that's where we see, secondly, God judges by what you do, not by being Jewish. And then secondly, God judges by what you do not by having the law. You see, one of the things that the Jewish people prided themselves on was that they had God's law. But whether you have the law or not, Paul said, God judges by what you do. Look at verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, it is the doers of the law who will be justified or declared righteous. Now wait, I mean, how can that be fair is kind of where the argument's going. I mean, Gentiles by nature don't even have the law. They don't have it read to them every Sabbath. But Paul says they have enough. As those made in the image of God, the work of the law is written on their hearts. And he says they have a conscience. And you can also see moral reasoning that's taking place. And so they have a form of the law written on their hearts. But what Paul's arguing here is that the internal law on the hearts of the Gentiles, it works in the same way as the external law found in the law of Moses. It's really good at identifying sin and saying this is wrong, but it doesn't transform. And Paul's going to unpack that more as we go on. But the bottom line is this, of what Paul's saying about God's impartial judgment. On the day of judgment, on the day of future judgment, when each one stands before God, it will be for what you have done. If at one point you knew the right thing you should do and you didn't do it or you did the wrong thing, either because you knew that internally or you've heard it from the law, then you are condemned under the standard of God's righteous judgment. You are declared unrighteous and worthy of condemnation. Probably didn't come to church today to hear such great news, right? Um, Now, part of the objection that I have as I hear that is, okay, that's good and biblical. I'm not going to argue with it. But man, that sure seems harsh. That doesn't, I mean, okay, I see that that's fair, God, but that doesn't, I mean, do you really have to have a standard like that? And I think what can be helpful to think about is there could be all kinds of things. But what I was thinking about this week is this. Say you have a company that produces personal rockets for space travel. Wouldn't that be great? I mean, who doesn't want one of those, right? Um, And so you're a company that's making these Rockets that you can just go in and fly to the moon. Um, And as you're producing those rockets, you're testing them, right? And as you test 10 of them, 
eight or nine of them don't explode. 80, 90% are doing great. Could a true, just, righteous, holy God ever put a label on those rockets that says they are righteous when one or two out of ten explodes? No, he couldn't, right? We would... We would find that to be atrocious if we were buying a rocket to go to space and knew that the system was that damaged, right? And so if we have a standard like that about getting in a rocket to go to space, it helps us start to understand a little bit more of why one sin against an infinitely holy God corrupts the whole thing. You see, but I think part of the problem is when we think about what we want the next life to entail, what we think about is like, as long as it's better than this, right? I mean, I'll take, I'll take the top 80% of, well, the top 20% of people, right? The top 20% of the most godly people and just kind of put them all together. That'll be better than this, right? But see, <laughs> the part of the reason that the Old Testament is as, lo- as long as it is is because God has shown us so thoroughly what happens when we just try a restart with better people. You have Adam and Eve in the garden who were better than all of us. And how did that go? Not very well. Let's try again with Israel. How do they do under Moses? Eh. How about Joshua? Nope. Let's try the judges. Oh boy. (laughs) Maybe some kings. Well, a few sort of exile. After exile, still terrible. Messiah comes. God isn't about just trying to get us to some place better where it all goes south again. The kingdom of God that Jesus brought is a kingdom where righteousness dwells, where everything in it is perfect, never to be corrupted again. And so when we understand that, it helps us understand why one sin, one rebellion against the creator can't be allowed in God's eternal paradise dwelling, right? If at any point in your life you know what you should do and you don't do it, you are not righteous. Now, before we move on to hear good news, (laughs) it's coming, it's coming, trust me. I think we have to let this do its work. God's impartial judgment, it humbles us. It humbles us. It's part of understanding the good news. It's part of rightly understanding the gospel. You see, some of us live our lives preoccupied with the sins of others. We're pointing out wrong and we're comforting ourselves that at least I don't do that. Maybe we're priding ourselves on how well we know and discern what's true and what's right and what's wrong. Maybe in our darkest moments we find ourselves thankful that we're not like those unbelievers out there or those other Christians who just don't know as much as we know. Let Paul's words do their convicting work. If you failed to do one thing you should have done, unrighteous is your verdict. You will receive the same final verdict as those that you point your finger at and condemn. And you need, I need, 
God's saving grace just as much as they do. But there's a flip side. Others of us live our lives preoccupied with the goodness of others. A lot of times we oscillate in between, but that's its own thing. But we live our lives preoccupied with the goodness of others, looking at others, looking around and feeling like there's something wrong with us. Why can't I get it together? Why can't I measure up? I mean, I look around on Sunday and I'm obviously the worst one here. Everyone else seems to be doing great. And I'm sure that in a group our size, there are those of us who have struggled with the sins that are listed in Romans chapter 1. Every sin that's spelled out there in Romans chapter 1 is represented here in this room. This is just how it works. And you may constantly think in your daily life that because of what you have battled, because of what your temptations are, because of what you have done, there is no way that God could ever make you righteous. There's no way that you could ever be accepted here, much less in the kingdom of God. But let Paul's words do their reorienting work. That you along with every person in this room, no matter how together they seem to have it, you are in the exact same need of the saving grace that all of us need. And you are just as entitled to the saving grace and love and forgiveness of God, regardless of what you have done or what you may struggle with. You see, God's impartial judgment it helps us see our equal need of God's impartial grace. That grace that we find in Jesus' perfect judgment. And that's our final point, Jesus' perfect judgment. You know, Romans 1 through 3 are, in many ways, some of the darkest chapters in the Bible. I mean, we can find some dark narratives, but these are describing theologically what's going on in the darkness of our heart. But what I find absolutely amazing is this Paul, who's not ashamed of the gospel, who boasts in the gospel, who's all about the gospel, in these darkest chapters of the Bible where he lays out our true condition, he never loses sight of the gospel. Did you notice what he said in verse 16 when he spoke of judgment day? Judgment Day, which when we think of our own efforts, it terrifies us. But he says this, On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. There are some amazing words just sprinkled in there, but they're not just sprinkled in the mind of Paul. They're front and center. And I want that to happen for us today. I don't know what you picture when you think of Judgment Day and standing before God. But Paul reminds us of what the rest of Scripture say of who is there. The judgment of God will happen by or through Christ Jesus. Jesus in his earthly ministry makes it clear that the Father has entrusted all judgment to him. In John chapter 5 and then elsewhere we see that um, doing the final judgment is part of what Christ has been honored with for his role as mediator between God and man. And so on that day of judgment when each one stands before God and the standard is impartially according to what we have done 
and we all deserve to be condemned because we've all failed to do what we knew was right, we will be judged by the one human who never did any wrong. Isn't that an amazing thing? He's the only one who never once committed any of the sins mentioned in Romans 1. He's the one who loved God and obeyed the truth from the moment he was born. He was the one who lived his whole life and was not for one moment self-seeking. But he patiently persisted in God-honoring, well-doing every moment of every day. And he sought and he earned glory and honor and immortality. He earned eternal life as a man for the perfect work he did while he was here on earth. And so Paul says that when that Jesus, Christ Jesus the Lord, conducts this judgment, the judgment that he renders will be according to my gospel. And Paul's not saying he's the only one who gets the gospel. He's just saying it's this gospel that I believe in, I love, that I've been entrusted with, that I'm proclaiming to you. And what does the gospel say? That this perfect Messiah Jesus is the one whom the Father put forth as the propitiation for our sins, the one who would pay the price for what we deserved, for all of that condemnation, for what we have failed to do and what we have done that is wrong. That the Lord Jesus willingly offered himself as a sacrifice for us. The one who deserved no judgment bore all the judgment for us. He endured the tribulation and distress that we deserve for our sin. God's wrath and fury was poured out on him so that by faith in him, it will never be poured out on us. We can be declared righteous, justified, simply by trusting in his perfect work and the judgment he endured on our behalf. And you know what we receive? The gift of eternal life, glory and honor and immortality. And Paul says, peace or shalom forever. Our judge under Jesus' perfect judgment is none other than our Savior who died for us. And there's one more thing that we need to understand with this, is that Jesus' work not only forgives us and justifies us, but it also transforms us. It makes us people who, when we read that judgment sandwich, we realize that what Jesus' work is actually doing is making us people who are more and more motivated, not by self, but by the glory and honor of God. People who more and more, even though it's in fits and starts, obey the truth rather than the lies of unrighteousness and idolatry. Who begin more and more to do good rather than evil. And it's imperfect now, but it will be perfect one day. We will be truly righteous forever. Paul says, that's my gospel. That's the standard for judgment of Jesus, whom I will stand before one day. So there were problems 
in the church at Rome. They were similar to many challenges that we face today. But part of the solution is to battle against this distorted judgment that we have and to battle against it by seeing God's impartial grace. And I just want to close with this. Isn't it fascinating that when Paul is dealing with rooting out this judgmental heart, what does he say back in verses 4 and 5? He says, when you're busy pointing the finger at others and you're not even realizing you do the same thing, do you know what's going wrong? You're presuming upon the kindness and forbearance and patience of God. He's saying, you've misunderstood the purpose of those things. God's kindness and forbearance and patience isn't so you can just stay there pointing at others so you can sleep at night and feel okay about yourself. God's kindness and forbearance and patience is an invitation to repentance. It's not to run away and to hide. It's not to run away and point the finger at others and hope God doesn't notice. It's to come repentantly saying, you know what? You're right. I see it. It's there. Forgive me. Transform me. Change me by the work of Jesus. And you know what meets us every time? Kindness, forbearance, patience, which by their very nature, forbearance and patience means again and again and again. This isn't just something that happens in our lives when we come to Jesus for the first time in repentance from our sins. This is the kindness of God that we find in the Lord Jesus Christ every moment of every day as it gives us the courage to look deep within and to bring those things for cleansing and transformation. What an amazing, impartial grace. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are humbled. We have no ground in and of ourselves on which to stand. We are undone by your impartial judgment. And yet we are overwhelmed with your grace of what Jesus has done for us. Will you remind us afresh of your warm kindness toward us in him? Will you make us people who are so shaped by it that we stop pointing at others and ignoring what's in our hearts and instead that we become ambassadors of your kindness and patience and forbearance to people who are tortured internally over the weight of their own sin so that they could find the healing and grace that we have found in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.